Hello everyone, you are listening to Black Adoptees Identities. I am your host, Christelle Pellicuer, and I am a coach and a multidisciplinary creative. Please join me to explore what identity means for adult adoptees and how they form their identity for their own adoption journey. In this podcast, you will hear a variety of views from adult adoptees about their own experience of adoption and how adoption has impacted them and what lessons they have learned along the way. Please note that the guests have been courageous in sharing their stories and some of the content and subject matters can be emotionally challenging and distressing for some individuals. Please use your own judgment whether to continue to listen or not and do look after yourself. And if you are affected by some of the issues discussed, please seek appropriate support and help. In this episode, I am in conversation with Dr. Patrice Martin, an adoptee and adoptee advocate based in Tennessee. Dr. Patrice Martin shared about her origin story and the circumstances that led to her adoption. She also talked about her identity growing up in the same race adoptive family and the reunion with birth family on a live television. Dr. Patrice Martin also shared about her advocacy work in the adoption space around media, faith and legislation. We further discussed the increasing trend of baby boxes and the vulnerable position and lack of support for young pregnant women. And finally, we discuss the role of media in portraying a positive story of adoptees and the issue around adoptive parents parading their children on social media. This episode is very rich and very relevant to current issues, so please tune in. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Black Adoptees Identities. I'm Crystal Pellicuer, your host, and I am really, really honored to welcome today Dr. Patrice Martin. I've been hearing so much about her work and some of our stories, so it's a really an honor and I'm very excited to be in person with her. Not in person, but on screen and across the, the internet with her. Dr. Patrice Martin is an adoptee advocate and non-profit management scholar practitioner with over 25 years of experience in grants and program management. Dr. Patrice Martin's advocacy work is in adoptee community, started in 2019 after reunification with her biological family on the hit TLC show Long Lost Family. Dr. Patrice Martin's free advocacy pillar in the adoptee communities are media, ensuring that adoptee and NP voices are true stories are told. Second pillar is faith. Dr. Patrice Martin is founder of the grassroots movement, the Adoptee Prayer Collective, which holds an online space for adoptees and others to pray, meditate, and all space with each other before God. And the third pillar is legislation. Dr. Patrice Martin uses our voice for a series of podcast appearances and will work to draft legislation to advocate for laws that support the right of adoptees and speak on issues of great importance in this area. 
throughout her career in business, she has raised the capacity of many multi-million dollar organizations for the implementation of various fundraising policy and process management initiatives centered on compliant grants management practice. She also served as an adjunct instructor in business and social and behavioral sciences at Wilmington University. Dr. Patrice Martin has a, a Doctor of Business Administration DBA degree from Wellington University in Newcastle, Delaware, an MSc in Nonprofit Management from the Robert Morris University School of Business, a BA in Sociology, and a BA in, administra in Public Administration from the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Patrice Martin also remained connected with community initiatives by serving as a pro bono grant consultant and board member for courts appointed special advocates of Mercer and Burlington County in New Jersey. She lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and is married to Travis Martin, the owner of Enchanted Hills Logistic LCC. And she is the proud stepmother of Arizona State University student, Carentin Martin. Dr. Patrice Martin, welcome. I am so honored to be here with you. I am absolutely delighted to have you and watch a biography. And that's why I'm so honored because you have achieved so much in your life. And I am just here to listen and to hear so much of your wisdom. So for some of my audience will probably know a lot of your story because for those who are in America might have heard your story and also seen it in the longest family. But for the others who don't know, can you tell us a little bit more about your adoption story, some kind of background? Certainly. Um, so I was adopted at five months of age. I was, I guess the actual adoption wasn't finalized until I was eight months, but I was in, I was in foster care for the first five months of my life and then went to uh, my adoptive parents' home at five months of age and was always told that I was adopted. When I fast forward and when I was about 26, 27, I told, was told the nature of how my whole entire story came to be. And uh, my adoptive mother let me know that I was actually abandoned in a trash bin by my biological mother. And at the, fast forward a few years later after that, around 2018, I had the opportunity to be up late one night and was scrolling through the channels on TV and saw the show Long Lost Family and thought, wow, if there's a chance that I can be reunited with my biological family in any way that I would do so, they might be able to help. And I just couldn't get it out of my mind. So the next day I'm sitting at lunch and on my, on my break, I just wrote the show, filled out the casting call. And some months later, received a call back and the ball got rolling from there. And they have a formal partnership on Long Last Family with um, Ancestry DNA. I took a DNA test and there subsequently was a hit on the taping of the show. I did not know that. They just called me in to kind of tell my story. And on the actual show, they reunite you with a family member on the show. I was reunited with my sister on, and it's actually season six, episode eight 
of um, the United States version of Long Lost Family. The episode's called Switched in the Hospital, but that's not my particular story. But um, there's two stories on one episode. But um, I was reunited with my sister there. Um, got to hear literally who I was um, from that standpoint and have fostered a relationship with her that has been wonderful ever since and really, really has allowed me to grow in a lot of ways. And I really just appreciate the opportunity that that afforded me. I also was reunited with my birth mother. It wasn't on camera, but it was afterwards. She was um, gravely ill at the time. And at four months later, I met her twice in my life. She passed away. So I got a chance to have some conversations with her. But I kind of keep, you know, those details of those conversations close to the vest. But I will say that the overarching theme of it has been that I learned a little bit more about the power of story and about the power of reconciliation and how if you allow it, you can really utilize that in your life to reverberate and help others. I, because of the way that I was treated on the show with such care and my story was treated with such care, I developed this part for advocacy in this area. And as you stated in my bio, I have three pillars that I focus on in the media, helping to ensure that our stories are told well and that we're given the dignity and respect that we should have, whether we've been adopted or spent our lives in the foster care system. Secondly, in the faith community, I'm just very honest that there's been some harms done, but I am a member of the Christian community and believe that faith plays a big role in people's lives. And I see the benefits of staying connected to your faith and, and believing and for those that want to do it, and it's just a little hard because they've been harmed as adoptees by the faith community. I'm a kind of a repairer of the breach, so to speak, and um, I help them to see that God is still for them and still around and that they can still engage, even though um, some folks haven't done some things right. And I acknowledge that. And then thirdly, I work, I'm working on some projects to help move legislation along that really centers people who have been adopted, those who have been foster care. And I will say even too, this is my newest thing. I really see the benefits of understanding a woman's story and incorporating reproductive justice into this narrative and how a lot of times situations happen because of the marginalization of women and particularly women of color. So that's what I focus on. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> it is a lot. <laughs> and I like and I like to do it. I will say, you know, I like to do it too. I handle some heavy things, but I like to do it with humor. So absolutely. But I want to start from, I suppose, from the beginning. So you've always known you, you were adopted, but you found out later the circumstances. So how was your childhood? How did you, for you always knowing that you are adopted and you are adopted in the same way as adoption, right? And yes. So how yes. was that for your own childhood as knowing that you are mm -hmm. not the birth child of your parents? 
And then when you found out about your own circumstances of your adoption, how is that done to your own identity? Mm -hmm. Yes, I know that your work in identity is is really important. And I thank you for that. Um, And that's really a focus of this podcast, how it has affected me identity-wise. So what I say to people is off the top, the same race identity, the same race parentage, I certainly will say that I do not feel that I struggle with the identity of being African-American in this country. And one of the positive things about it was, is that both of my parents were kind of active in their own way. My mom a little less vocal, but my dad very much so in a movement in the 60s. So um, I'm actually, my name, Patrice, I'm actually directly named after Patrice Lumumba. So that is, uh, that if that gives any kind of indication about, you know, this understanding in the household of that Black people are strong, that there's, don't believe what, you know, this world, you got to live in this world, very young age. You're Black, you live in this world that has necessary has systems doesn't necessarily they didn't say it that way but it hasn't necessarily been set up for you to thrive but you can and you will you know so that there's a fun, fundamental belief there so I will say that that was one of the positive messages that I got and so grateful for them for that for that piece of it where it comes a little complex is this whole a system of adoption and the messaging around that. So not to slight them or anything, they just both had their own, you know, challenges. Um, My mother, you know, certainly was a wonderful stabilizing factor in that um, their marriage broke apart when I was about six or seven. It's kind of, I kind of get some blurry lines there. My dad was a, you know, an alcoholic, severe alcoholic that had some mental health issues that were um, untreated. And, and so that kind of, so I ended up in a situation where their relationship deteriorated and that affected me on top of the adoption. I didn't even realize that until later in life. And at 13, my adoptive father, actually he committed suicide. And so what that creates for a person is like this crested over this trauma. There's the initial trauma, right? Of what we know of, of not being mirroring with, you know, the, your biological family, which you have to deal with. Uh, all adoptees, there's a record that you just have to deal with it. It's not, even if you deal with it for five minutes, or if you spend your lifetime dealing with it, wherever it shows up in your life, it must be dealt with. The system is a thing. We know psychologically that it affects you. You can thrive, you can live whole, but you have to acknowledge how it has affected you. I will not shy away from saying that. So one of the things that, and and I think not to expose her story, but I think one of the reasons why adoptive parents get into adopting kids is because they have their own circumstance where they can't have, you know, children. So I believe in part of that reproductive justice piece is, is that I believe that we need to do a lot better in helping women who experience infertility issues to come home to themselves 
so that if they are to parent there and and especially in adoptive situations because there are people who need homes and all that or um you know I'm really advocating for legal guardianships more so now than adoptions but if you have that you bring someone into your home that you're parenting out of the space of I'm helping this person thrive in their life and not something that I need to get as a parent okay because I, I think that there can be some complexities with what you transfer on um, to a person that that person ends up having to untangle themselves. So I think that that's, if you had to ask me, that's where the complexities come from, really, is the adoption and how, uh, in the, you know, how that happens. One of the things that legislatively I'm really, really watching out for and fighting for is when I see it, I call it out. In the state of, state of Tennessee, where I live, they have shortened the time for home studies that they do for adoptions, which I do not agree with at all. And I will flat out say that um, if I get a chance to talk to any of those legislators, I will tell them that that was a dangerous move because home studies need to be lengthened so that you can figure out what's going on in these homes because you may just uncover. And it doesn't put anybody out of the game you know, or doesn't put anybody out of being parents that want to adopt if you haven't been on health issue, but it really might undergird them and give them some more supports and more supports for that child in that home. Because if you uncover that somebody has mental health issues, that's going to cause, there is a potential for re-traumatization of a, of a person. And we know this. So those are all the things that I know from my story that I think that I use to kind of highlight and help others. So the identity piece around being a Black person that has been raised in America, real solid, clear on that. The part of the whole adoption identity thing, I had to learn that later. And I had to learn how that story plays out in my story and then really focus on how, what I wanted to do with that, what that call was on my life. Are you able to share with us what was your origin story that your adoptive mother shared with you later on? Yes. So basically what, what my adoptive mother knew was that, you know, I was born and I was left by a trash bin. There was an article um, that she found in a paper. She knew that the story had come out in the news at the time in 1976. And so she was so gracious enough to help track down the article in the paper that was there. So I have that article. Not sure if I shared that with you, but I, I certainly can. And um, it was just basically a, a short article in the story about there was a baby left in October of 1976 by a rubbish bin. And um, there was a person that called in to let the police know that there's a baby left in this rubbish bin behind the mall, behind a mall area. I have come to find out that my mother, my biological mother, came to her senses after a mental break and called the police to disguise her voice and let them know that I was back there. And subsequently, later on in life, um, after she had been through, my biological mother had been through some traumas in her life, when she did get, I have other siblings that she had, um, when she did get them back, because she went through a period where um, she was separated from them as well, when she did get them back in their teenage years, she let them know that they had a sister, and she didn't that she did not know where I was, but she let them know. 
And so when I, when I met my biological mother, when I met Evelyn, she just had nothing to, she had nothing to hide. She had nothing to hide about her life. It was almost like it was a come full circle kind of moment. I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. Tell you dad is, I'm going to tell you what, you know, who I was. She was a nurse. She was a registered nurse. She had me on um, the bathroom floor of her parents' house where she was living with my older sister at the time. She cut the cord herself, had a mental break and put me behind them all because, you know, people, she hid the fact that she was pregnant and having a relationship with someone at work. And then she came to her senses and called the police. And so that's what fuels my work. That's what fuels my work. I don't want women to end up having to make those choices, hide who they are, you know, hide their, you know, or just feel so stressed out because they have, because they're pregnant. I want them to feel loved. I want them to feel cared for and that it might be hard, but you can get through this and that you can, you and your kid can make, you know, no matter what choices you make, um, you and your child can make, um, can thrive. So that's uh, that's what I want. That's what I want for people. But I do not go for, I'm very clear about this. I do not go for any legislation that will promulgate people continuing to abandon kids. Um, I'm working right now on some things around this whole baby box issue. I don't know if you have that internationally, but people are putting these baby boxes everywhere that kind of give moms just a free out. They'll put the box and then it kind of rings an alarm or whatever. It's like an incubator. You put the baby in there. Somebody runs out and get it. No questions asked. Very different than the safe haven laws where, you know, you give over a child face-to-face to a person. You relinquish that child and you get some counseling. You get some, you know, you get get some support that way. This is just put them in a box and just go. And we're seeing an uptick in this in places such as Tennessee and others where, you know, they really have, since the overturn of Roe versus Wade, because they're, you're seeing an uptick in these boxes everywhere, abandoning people and the fallout that it causes in life is not a solution. It creates more complications for children and their attachment style in life, which we know. And also creates mental health and complications for the moms. My mother had severe mental health issues after she did what she did. Yeah, and that's what I found really interesting since I've been starting this podcast. Because as mentioned to you just before we start recording, is I didn't think I was going to be interviewing people all the way to America or Canada. And what I'm realizing is now is how different legislation are across Europe and across America. The things that still exist in America today, we don't always have that in Europe. And for us, it's really important to hear those stories because you would think, oh, that's we only see this in movies. That doesn't exist. Well, it's it's, it's actually <laughs> it's actually really interesting. This is the international issue. There are baby boxes internationally. And I, you, um, there's a old movie. Um, I'll give you the link to it. But there's around this whole issue, and in in Asia, um, 
Asian countries or there this is there's this has been um I know I believe the last word it was uh Pakistan too as well. There's these boxes popping up. So this is an international an international issue. But if you think about the heart of what this is creating and the messaging that this is creating around women's rights, this is not this isn't the way to go. And I am, I mean, I'm glad you're talking about the Mordas perspective because again, that is not the the side that we always hear in the adoption space. <laughs> very often the birth mother is very forgotten because once the baby is relinquished, we don't normally hear back unless there is reunion. Yeah. And you don't always hear the reason why a mother would abandon our child. And I know that, you know, I had the child when I was very young and mm -hmm. it was a very stressful time period for me because I was still a child in a way. Yeah. Pregnant and, you know, I've just moved to a new country at the time. I've just moved to the UK from France. All my family, all my adoptive family was in France. I didn't know my birth family at the time. Um, and because I've just moved, I didn't have that many friends in the UK. So it's mm -hmm. a very vulnerable time for me. And I know going through that, although my daughter's father was supportive of me and was there at the time, but I still found it very difficult. And, you know, mentally I was in a very fragile state because I was still dealing with my own adoption, dealing with identity crisis at the time and then you have to come up and like oh you're pregnant you're gonna have to raise a child so there's so many things going for your mind so I can imagine that especially when you're a young mother or young woman being pregnant there's all sorts of things coming for your head mm -hmm. and I suppose also is sometimes family put pressure on you you know, mm -hmm. I didn't tell my, my adoptive parents for seven months that I was pregnant because I was so afraid to tell them, you know, I don't talk about this very often. This is probably one of the first time I talk about it, but I didn't tell my adoptive parents because I was raised in a very Catholic family and you yeah. don't have a child before you get married. And so I felt the whole pressure like, oh, I'm the first one in the family to, mm -hmm. to do this. So I've already got this, oh, I'm not good enough because yeah. I'm pregnant before I'm, I'm even married and all sorts of things was going through my head. So I couldn't tell my parents until pretty much very close to giving birth. So so, so right there, I know you're interviewing me, but, but right there, I just want you to stop. This is the very reason, this is how I ended up. What you, everything that you went through you made the decisions you made. My biological ma mother made, was going through the same exact thing and made the decisions that she made. Mm -hmm. So this is the thing. There's something there that causes all of what you felt. You even, you talked about exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. The intersection of, of you know, there was race in your story. There was, there was, you know, your young socioeconomic status, there's family pressure or shame. There was legislation that probably really didn't support you at the time. There was choices that you had to make. 
oh, you're you're talking exactly the nucleus of why I'm doing the work that I'm doing right there. Yeah, and I think it's a very fine line between deciding to keep your child and and thinking, oh, they will have a better life, or you know, it's the same story about adoption, or you'll have a better. Or life. having this mental break where you literally are like, I'm so scared. I just have to put, I got to get rid of you. Yeah. I got to put, I, I I realize what I've done. Oh my God, I can't do this. Yeah. And then I, I would imagine that in, in the case of your mother, when she's decided what she decided to do, there was no turn around, even if she wanted to turn around, because this is the problem. Once you decide to do one thing, you don't get second chances to, to undo what you've done. So when you're not very clear about, what you're supposed to do and you do things in the in the moment are not a and, clear ed space. And that's why the safe haven laws are so much better than the random baby box. Because it's a lot of these safe haven laws have your face to face and you have a window of time to think about with no punity. If you want to go now, I don't know the numbers of people, you know, I can go back, but we got to afford people that option. We got, that's, you know, that's, that's, I, I don't mean to get too spiritual here, but for me, that's, that's love. You know, that's when people are in crises, you know, I use this analogy all the time, Christelle, where if I'm in a burning building, right? And the building's on fire and you're at the bottom and you shout up to me in the building. Why did you know the building was on fire? Why is it burning? No, I need you to run around the back of that building, find some water and either throw it on that fire, <laughs> find a ladder to help me get out. Or do something, but don't ask me when I'm in the middle of the fire why I was there. And I think that that's sometimes that's what our systems are set up to do. They're not set up to, they're not certainly not set up to help you think about family planning as much. And you know, it's it's so much shame associated, especially in the faith community and all that kind of stuff. We could talk about that, but they're not set up to either number one help you not get into the situations that you, you know, may find yourself. But then when you're in these situations, they're not set up to help you get out or support you in them. Well, yeah, this is it. I think this is probably the mostly why women decide to to relinquish because they, they know they're not going to get the support afterwards. Yeah. You know, if you are trained as a society to say there is the support for young mothers you're going to be safe. Your child is going to be safe. You'll be a very different situation. And I'm not here to talk about, I'm not on the camp. There's other people dealing with why people do what they do, whatever. I'm talking about you're in it. What are we going to do? I'm not getting into those other conversations about why you got in it. This has been happening since the beginning of time. And I just don't think that that's my business to talk about why you've gotten into it. But what I am saying is, is that we need to support people who find themselves in a crisis. Absolutely. Okay, let's go back a little bit on 
so you are you got reunited in the middle of a TV show with your sister. <laughs> so you didn't know before the day of the TV show that you're going to be reunited with your sister because I haven't and seen the show because it's blocked in the in in Europe, so I'm not able to access at it. Oh, so whatever you see on the TV show is happening. I'm being I was interviewed, you know, over the series of a couple of days. They went through the story, just like I told you, you know, these are the parts that I know. Then the interviewer, who's also an adoptee, the hosts are, it's wonderful, says to me, well, we have, a we, we found some people. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> and, you know, she told me we found your, your mom, well, we found um, a, your sister, and you also have a brother who is um, a full biological sibling. So your sister's your half sibling and your brother's your full biological sibling and they your mother, you know, you grew up they grew up with your mom. What was going for oh. your dad and for your buddy at that time? I was like at first I was like, oh wow, like my immediate thought, because that's how I was told was like, well, I wonder if I I was like, I wonder if they want to see me or do I want to see that? Like what, you know, like your brain is like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? You know? And so then she asks um, on the show, you know, would you want to see them? I said, yeah, I would want to meet them, you know? Because now you open up the, you know, and of course I know on the show that that's a whole point is that you go to be reunited with people. So I didn't come that far to be like, no, I don't want to meet anybody on camera. Like, so I wouldn't do that. But yeah. So I said, well, your sister's here, you know, going to be here and you'll be reunited with her. And um, that was a really special time, you know, that so they taped us and we met each other. And she just is. Um, she is a, a wonderful person. She's a, really a rock for me. We both are trying to learn each other's lives and I'm fierce advocate for people in foster care, you know, because she and my brother ended up in that system for a little, just a little bit. And uh, we're just trying to get to know each other. You know, it's 40 plus years of not knowing somebody. So, you know, you get, you, and, and we're not, we're not trying to act like, you know, our relationship is what it is, but at least just about, just about every day I have some type of contact with her. And this past holiday season, Christmas, um, I was able to go to a family gathering with her and play cards with my brother for the first time. And it just, you know, it's been a good thing. People aren't, you know, trying to make something that is not, but we're also working to say we we do have some time, lost time to be made up for. One of the more beautiful things about this story is, is that I have some other siblings as well uh, from my father's um, side. That I've met as well, and I have nephews, and um, so I'm an aunt in a little bit different way, and trying to navigate that what that means. But it's been it's been beautiful, and I'll I'll say too the importance of even having a supportive, you know, family network as well. Um, I cannot say enough about my husband's support when he knew the instant that I was going to meet someone. He you know rode miles and miles on his motorcycle to say, okay, next day I'm going to try to, I'm going to see them too, you know? And I think um, just his intrigue, the whole situation and just honoring 
just seeing me for who I totally am, my identity in that, and just accepting like, yeah, it's a both and type thing. Like you got, you know, you got this family too now, you know, and then it's not, it's both. It's not a lesser than, a greater than, it's a both and situation and in my life and I'm navigating that. So that's part of my um, identity as well. And how was the reunion of your mother? It, that was, that was, um, that was interesting. I saw her twice. The first time I saw her, I didn't have too much energy, but we talked really a good, probably half hour to an hour, um, reconciled some things again, as you know, I, I, I hold that conversation dear and close to my heart. So I don't really repeat, you know, but we reconciled on some issues and, you know, I think it was good. Um, it was definitely good. You don't get all your questions answered, certainly in a half hour in life. And you don't even know what to ask, you know, fully. The second time she was going through some health challenges that I think just affected her in her brain. But she, one thing I do know is we have some pictures of her with everybody. And I think she realized that she finally came home to herself. I got all my kids with me for whatever reason that the fact that, and, and, and that's more about her and her being able to have that moment. But in my eyes, spiritually, that God would honor, that I would be so honored to be a part of that for a, a woman who suffered so much from her decisions um, in that grace. I'm humbly honored to be a part of that story. That's just the extension of where, why I'm fighting so hard for others. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And I am really happy for you that you managed to, to meet her. Yeah. And your sisters and your siblings. It's, mm -hmm. it's a beautiful reunion because I know that, you know, from interviewing so many adoptees, that reunion is not always. No, it's not. Good. So I, yeah, it's really nice to it's hear. Not, it's not, and, and it's not easy, even when it's good, right? It's not easy. So I have my own, you know, I'm very vocal about this. I have a therapist that I've been working with for years. She's amazing, amazing person. You know, I have this statement. Everybody knows that I say this. There's a lot of there, there, <laughs> you, you know, even though it's good, there's a lot of there, there, you know, and it's may not even be the people you, it's, it's the system. You gotta, you gotta grapple with how it, it, it affects you. And we're not going to not, I'm not here to play games and act like it doesn't. And that you don't need support and that you don't need support throughout the journey of your life. You can live, you can live whole, you can flourish. You can do a whole lot of things, but you've got to recognize that this is plays out in your life and in your story and how it plays out for you may not be the same for someone else, but you've got to recognize that it does because it's just not, it, it, it messes with your core and your, I love your podcast and your identity, who you are. It may reverberate. You know, you may have times where you recognize, you know, I'm doing some stuff in the workplace around this and how you show up to work. You know, a lot of adoptees or workaholics are trying to prove something all the time. All the time. Take a couple steps back. 
push away from your desk, have a, have a glass of tea. Am I having one of those days where that messaging is kicked up for me and I need to step back? Do I not need to take that extra project right now at work, regardless of what is going on? Because I need to stay near to myself. Do I just need to be home and not necessarily go hanging out with people this weekend because I just need a minute with myself to think about how did something affect me this week? Why do I feel a little off? You know, I talk to so many people and they say, oh yeah, it's my birthday's coming up in a month. You know, my, it's for some people, September 28th, start feeling a little off. My birthday might be October 28th. That's why. Stay close to yourself though. I may drum up all kinds of things. Even if you never knew anybody, even if you had a stable, you know, people stable, loving home. What, what quote unquote that is, I don't know, but because people are people. But even if you had some really, really stable foundation, you this thing still affects you. Yes, and it does affect so many different areas of adoptee's mm -hmm. life and even the people in their lives, you know, like you mentioned, yeah. right? husbands have to be there for you and go for your stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it's my daughter all the time that I think about that my story has affected her no matter what, even if I don't want mm -hmm. to, but it has affected her. And, you know, the trauma that I carried because I was so young and didn't have gone for the the work that I've done now. Some of those traumas she's carried over as well, because until I, I was able to acknowledge, yes, this adoption thing has affected me. <laughs> That's that is affecting people around me. Absolutely. Yeah. It's 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 that's a, a whole that's a whole different podcast. We oh can my have. <laughs> there's so many layers and so many <laughs> <laughs> different area we can go to but i want to to touch on one of the pillars that you're working on mm -hmm. uh, and one of them is media so your story was kind of blown up on tv for the media and you had a very good experience with that but i know that technology especially right now in this age of social media mm. it's not always positive the way one adoptees are portrayed Mm -hmm. through the mothers, the birth mm -hmm. mother are portrayed, but also sometimes the thing that really hurt me in a way is seeing how adoptive parents are parading their babies or children mm -hmm. on social media without thinking that this is going to affect this child later on in life. How do mm -hmm. you see this? I am so glad you're asking me this question. So just the past week, I have, there have been some people, and I, and this is going to cross over the two areas of my pillar areas, one in the faith community and one in, in this media thing, but there is a particular person who has been extremely helpful for me in her Bible studies that she has. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this particular person. I'm not going to call her out by name. But this reverberates in the like faith community as well. And you'll see why. She has a couple of Bible studies she's done. I mean, just extremely helpful on, you know, how you think and how your mind works and all of that. And she is an adoptive parent. 
And there's a lot of white saviorism there. And that, that comes out in her social media. I have another um, instance where in my life where I saw that as well with a person that I really loved, you know, that a former church that I was going to in New Jersey, quite a few people, just how they moved. There's so much white saviorism there. And if I tried to even tell them because I love them, they would not get it. And it, you know, I know it was a wedge. I really, really, really believe whether you're same race parent or you're not, or you're transracial, you need to take an extra step in how you parade your family on social media. You need to do it because we already know how social media affects us you know, there's just an inherent for all of us. Okay. I'm very truthful. There's just an inherent, um, almost narcissism that comes with social media. You know, I'm, even if you're trying to get the word out about a podcast or whatever, that's not talking about, you know, you got to put it out so people will listen. Okay. But you're doing it because you want people to listen to your stuff. Right. But you have to be really, really careful on how you function and move with social media, period. Because we all have these, we get excited, right? And we're like, oh, we want people to see this and, you know, whatever. But we got to really think about who needs to see this? You know, who really needs to be involved in this and the intention? Now, I had somebody come against me. Um, this is an, a person who claims to be an adoptive advocate and she was a parent. And really said to me one day, you know, I would have never suggested that you do what you did to find your family. That was just, I, that you should not have done that, me being on the show. And there's people that probably starkly believe that I, now, the place that I was in at the time, though, was they might help me. I got this story out here. I didn't know what I didn't know. I genuinely approached it from that you know, vain. I could see some concerns, but I also saw that it was me making the decision to go on the show. A lot of these children are byproducts of what their parents are ending up on social media of what their parents are doing. Let's go back to a statement that I made earlier about if you're parenting people who are not biologically related to you, you have to take a certain care with that child's story and figure out how you're going to do that in a way that cares about them and centers them. So if they're not old enough to speak for themselves, I don't think they need to be on social media. I don't, I, I just don't. Unless you take general family portrait and babies laying there, don't say anything separate about that child. Don't say anything separate about their story. Don't say anything separate about it's just family portrait. Let it stand as a family portrait. If you genuinely, everybody's equal in this family and you're genuinely just taking family portrait and you just want everybody to see, then let it stand for what it is. But until that person can, can speak and live out their story for themselves and all of them make the choices about themselves and their story being told, 
You don't parade them. You don't say anything about them. I totally agree with you. And I mean, there's that story that everybody, it's gone viral the last few yeah. weeks. Yeah. You probably know what you're talking about. I know that guy's witching and he didn't do that. Exactly. <laughs> and that baby is only a few days old, if, if that. And I wanted to, to ask them to go into the other part of your pillar of work is the legislation side. For me, it's adoption agencies should put some legislation into place to say to adoptive family, your child mm-hmm. should be parade on social media until mm. a certain point. Mm. Mm. That would be interesting. You know, you're bringing up something, a piece of it that I never even thought. My work with the media was just to ensure that because I've seen the power of story that when you are telling our stories that they're told or you write into your script about a person who's in foster care or in adoption that it's done well, you know, a person I consider a friend and a mentor in this movement, Angela Tucker, she, she you know, did some consulting with, um, you know, a famous show. And she could, I joke with her all the time about you consulted so well with that show, that show, This Is Us. I don't know if you've ever, to the point where this was, <laughs> it was so well written that I actually, it was very close to my story. She didn't know it at the time. We didn't even know each other. So well, so much so that I couldn't watch the story because it was, you know, traumatizing. Now I'm going to try to watch the show. I just couldn't finish the show. But that's, that's good media. That's writing in our stories well enough that our vantage point, our how we see the world, how we're navigating the world is told in such a way that it's so close that you get get to see what we go through. Fast forward, there's another story that shall be nameless, but I think when I describe it, people will figure out what it is about. It was on the streaming platform and it was about a person who ends up being a serial killer. But the whole fabric of their story had to do with the fact that they were in foster care. And I said, oh, here we go. While this story is intriguing, and it was, I mean, the show blew up. It was what, you know, here we go again with the na- with the narrative of the, the serial killer, you know, a person who foster care or adoptee, you know, of how, why Why did, just think about why did you have to write that part? Why did that have to be part of the story? I just want you to think. Now, if you come out on the other side and that's just part of that person's story, but I would like to consult with people and say, why did that have to be there? And is there more to it? Because what it does is, yes, we do know. There are certain um, adverse childhood experiences that people have a proclivity to, to that are in the adoption foster care community. However, that's not everybody's outcome. So you've got to watch what kind of narrative you put out there about groups of people because it'll stereotype. So you have all these, you know, and while, yes, I am saying that we have certain things that we deal with, it doesn't mean that you can't have a whole life. And I think some of the assumption is with some of these narratives that if you automatically say you were in foster care, if you already say that you're adopted, that somehow, oh, you're on top dealing with less than a person. 
when you're dealing with that person. And that is not true. They may have some things to work out in their journey, but they're still whole. And so we've got to figure out how we are going to tell these stories in a way that um, don't cause harm to our community. Yeah, no, absolutely. As it should be. I mean, there is like everything else. It's how you use the media. It's how it is being. It's how you use it. And and how because adoption should be the last resort, and a child interest should be at the best interest. But when people mm -hmm. are parading children on social media, they become a props, and it's it's more about getting more like than sharing the story of that child and i think that's yeah. where the issue comes from when the child is being objectified mm -hmm. and that's yeah. why i was asking do you think there should be adoption agencies should have something some legislation in place for those families as part of the yeah. training program yeah uh, you know training or Oh, I definitely believe that I'm the parent. Like, there's so much. I just had a conversation with another advocate. This whole business of adopting children and then just dropping them in the homes, and then once they're adopted, and parents don't get any more supports after that, after you do the home study and you find out that no, 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 <laughs> that's all. And so that's part of what you're talking about is, you know, part of in that teaching and in that training, even if it isn't full legislation though it's if it doesn't go to being legislated but part of that training that needs to follow people who have integrated a person into their home that they're not biologically related to but that's looking at we're talking about looking at this whole thing differently though and reimagining it yes <laughs> i mean we we've still got a long way to go in in the adoption system yeah you get to be very child-centered because there's all the whole area about, which is, again, would take a lot more time to talk about that, but there's the whole area about adoptions, adoptees' right to have their information, you know, because oh. the people don't even know who they are, you know, because not, you know, in your case, it was more difficult, but for some people, they could have had the information easily if it wasn't taken away from them. So that's another big area that need to be a lot of reform around that. A lot. Uh, but there's wonderful people, well, Annette and Greg at Adoptees um, United. I, I could go on with the names, but wonderful people doing work that will that are ensuring that that happens. The, the rights issue, I just am stunned when I hear. It's almost like you're talking about some... <laughs> people that we're fighting for in a third world country and some and people don't believe it but it's true so i'm um, staunch advocate for right to know yeah all goes back to identity and you know people being whole yes it's 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 so important to know who we are and at the end of the day that's come back that's the core yep. of who we are so it's just, that's it yeah it's, it, it's not even any more than that right yeah. And that, and the fact that you would marginalize certain groups that they don't have the right to know, but not really see it that way and not see how you're participating in that game of doing that to people. Right. I got a problem with that. Yes. 
there's so much more we could talk about because this issue is so huge and the adoption mm -hmm. space, that's why there's so many of us keep talking about it and yes. been in this space for a long time, a lot longer than I am. And we're still here talking about things have moved on, you know, but yes, a long way to go. And I think, you know, part of your work in the media is to, to get the right story to be told about adoptees. So that is really amazing that there's people like you who do so many different areas. And I really like that you do three different pillars because very often people just, you know, stick to one thing, but I think all this mm -hmm. three areas are really important for a lot of us adoptees. So thank you so much for all the work you're doing. Oh, thank sharing, you. For coming to chat with me today. It's been a real honor and a real pleasure to get to know you and to hear your stories. And I am sure I'll be in touch again at some point. Oh, yes, we will. We will definitely. We're forging a, we are forging an international friendship of a, that is a part of this movement. And I have, I cannot say, I said to you before we started saying, it is an honor um, to be here with you. And I will support you in any way that I can in the power of the work that you're doing. It has a really unique piece to it. And you have an international platform that is amazing. So thank you for allowing me to be here. Oh, thank you. It's an honor for me too. And I, I almost forgot to ask my last question that, real quick that I ask all my guests. Uh, yes. If you have advice to give to a young adoptee or youngest, your younger self, what would you, would you say? I would say anytime you get that little nudge in your day that tells you you don't belong or you feel that displaced feeling, just know to do whatever you need to do to come home to yourself. You know, that might be real, but it's not real. And it's just something you might just have to just deal with. But love you for who you are and that that's not the truth. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This was Dr. Patrice Martin who joined us. It has been a real honor. Thank you so much. And Thank until you. next time, take a good care of yourself. Thank you. All right. Thank you. This is Christelle Pellecure, and you have been listening to Black Adoptees Identities, where Black adult adoptees share their stories. Please do share and subscribe to our podcast and do stay connected with us by following us on Instagram at Black Adoptees Identities. Thank you for listening to this week's episode and until next time, goodbye.